This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 420,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel at any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast to claim your offer. That's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces. This episode, I'm recommending Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics by Stephen Greenblatt. You might not be surprised to learn that I'm an enormous fan of William Shakespeare. I spent 20 years as an English teacher, after all. But even if the bard isn't your cup of tea, Greenblatt makes his tour of tyrannical rulers from Shakespeare's plays extremely, even pointedly, relevant for our present day and circumstances. Shakespeare was a keen observer of how, even 500 years ago, charismatic and toxic leaders somehow came to power in otherwise enlightened societies, and his plays, as analyzed by Greenblatt, practically offer study guides in the rise, reign, and fall of populist dictators. It's a surprisingly engaging read. To check it out, go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. No dashes, no spaces. One last time, that's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 5, How Schools Weathered Past Global Crises. As the COVID-19 crisis drags on and school districts are now speaking realistically of the possibility of remaining remote come September and into the next school year, I've seen a proliferation of articles talking about how the shape and form of schooling is going to permanently change. Will online and remote teaching become the norm, and in-person classroom time reduced or even eliminated entirely? That prospect could seem enticing to cash-strapped school districts that would save on the costs of maintaining a physical brick-and-mortar school infrastructure, including staff like custodians and cafeteria workers, not to mention buses. And wow, will that put a lot of people out of work. Will in-person schooling become a luxury good? Will homeschooling become an expected function of all parents and guardians' lives from here on in? Will schools develop interconnections across city, state, and national borders, leveraging the internet to become an integrated global learning community? Spoiler alert, no one has access to a crystal ball, so no one knows for sure. But what we do know for sure is how schools have been transformed, for good and for ill, by large-scale crises in the past. Before we begin, I just want to give an appropriate shout-out to Valerie Strauss's April 26 article in the Washington Post that gave me both the idea and the general structure for today's episode. A link to her piece is included in this episode's sources section on our show's website, and I urge you to check it out. So, have schools weathered such crises in the past? The first of these massive crises that the modern system of American public schooling had to wrestle with came in the 1910s, which was a really, really rough decade for so many reasons. Where do I begin? World War I and the upheaval in economics and family dynamics that it entailed? The influenza pandemic, combined with smaller but still pretty large-scale outbreaks of tuberculosis and measles? Over 650,000 Americans died of these diseases, and that doesn't even count the people who died in the war. This all made it pretty hard for schools to carry on as normal. Many schools simply shut down during the heart of the flu pandemic from 1918 to 1919. The thing is, only the schools that closed right at the outset reduced their mortality rates when compared to similar cities that remained open. Those schools that closed later not only didn't have a demonstrable difference, but some cities like Chicago actually had more flu cases develop among their students during holiday vacations than during the school year. 
among schools that didn't close. Some experimented with new models, and one of these models was the open-air school model, which is exactly what it sounded like, holding classes in buildings without roofs, without walls, sometimes even without a building at all. Across the United States and across the world, this trend proliferated, even in places like Chicago, where the winter weather can get really, really cold. To be sure, some of these schools had walls that could be removed and replaced as needed. These folks weren't totally crazy. What they were doing was acting on best medical understandings of the time, that closed spaces increased rates of contagion. Now, any teacher listening knows how distracting it can be to have a fire engine pass by your classroom, even with the windows closed, or heaven forfend a bee should slip in through the window screen. Forget it, you've lost the class for the rest of the lesson. So you can imagine how problematic it was to keep kids' attention without any barriers to the outside world at all. Now, you could also see this as an opportunity to have kids use nature as their classroom, to go out and perform hands-on experiments in the natural world, and some schools did just that. But for many, if not most, the pedagogy kind of stayed the same. The model was still teachers lecturing and students taking notes and answering questions, and that was pretty hard to do in open-air schools. So it may come as no surprise that by the 1920s and the end of the epidemic, most open-air schools had gone back to being closed again, although some did last up until the Second World War. The crises of the 1910s also drew a lot of attention and research to how economic and racial disparities equated with health disparities, just like we're seeing now. So a lot of programs like nutrition education and proactive, not just reactive, school health services got their start around this time. This was also the time that something else got its start. JROTC, or Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps, whose primary purpose was, obviously, to create a pipeline of recruits to be soldiers in the war in Europe. But a large part of the JROTC curriculum involved wellness and exercise, and today's physical education programs owe a lot to this model. The first major and still so far biggest financial crisis American schools faced was the Great Depression in the 1930s, which robbed many towns and districts of the financial resources they needed to operate. And so a lot of schools closed, most temporarily, but some permanently, and others merged. I've tried without success so far to determine if this is the origin of regional school districts. Actually, evidence seems to point to that being a product of the 1940s and 1950s for some reason. But I invite my listeners to help out here and let me know if they come across something useful here. Anyway, by the beginning of 1934, almost 20,000 schools across the country had shut down. And of those that remained open, many districts were unable to reliably pay their teachers with anything other than IOUs, which in turn led to a lot of teachers leaving the profession and therefore increased class sizes, which meant schools had no choice but to cover less curriculum, and a lot of the students couldn't afford to bring their own supplies. It certainly looked like the end of the school as we know it. But it turned out that educated people were kind of still in demand. When President Roosevelt created the Civilian Conservation Corps, the National Youth Administration, to generate new jobs and spur employment, those agencies swiftly found that the new workers simply didn't have the reading, writing, and math skills to do a lot of those jobs. So for what I think is the first time in U.S. history, the federal government began directly funding, and in some cases even administering, public education. At its height, the Works Progress Administration was operating about 1,500 schools, while the Public Works Administration financed the construction of about 13,000 new school buildings. This is also the time that the Department of Agriculture began giving its surplus food to schools, which was the beginning of what would eventually become the National School Lunch Program. Without the Great Depression, we wouldn't have had school lunch, so thank President Roosevelt for your tater tots and pizza boats. When the money came back, so did a lot of the schools. It was a temporary contraction, especially since universal compulsory education had finally gotten rolling in every state by the 1930s, so all those kids did have to go somewhere. 
World War II brought another massive transformation to schools, in that the massive enlistment and conscription of American men, and the subsequent entry by necessity of millions of women into the full-time paid workforce, resulted in 60% of households having no stay-at-home parent. Who was going to take care of all these kids when they came home from school, or if they were too young to attend school at all? After all, as the author G.G. Wetherill put it in 1943, quote, the hand that holds the pneumatic riveter cannot rock the cradle at the same time, end quote. So what President Roosevelt did was use a bill that had passed before the U.S. had entered the war, the Defense Housing and Community Facilities Services Act of 1940, usually known as the Lanham Act, to drastically expand early childhood care and education. In anticipation of the possibility of the war to come, the act had given the government wide powers to fund all manner of initiatives that were related to wartime production, and what Roosevelt did was to use that power to fund over 3,000 nursery schools and other child care centers in every state in the Union except New Mexico. Seriously, New Mexico, what was your problem? Over $1 billion of today's money was spent providing care for over 130,000 children. I've seen more than a few activists agitating for something similar today for the COVID-19 crisis, given how difficult it is for parents to simultaneously homeschool their housebound children and work their jobs. Although fear of contagion does throw a bit of a monkey wrench into the idea of packing kids into government-funded daycare centers, the point is that early childhood care and education ended up with a massive boost thanks to the crisis. World War II came and went, but even after the Ben came back from the war, Daycare and nursery schools remained a widespread phenomenon, at least for those who could afford them when the subsidies dried up, and it is difficult to imagine a world without these services today. And speaking of creating the world we know today, specifically the ubiquity of college in the American success narrative, well, we owe that to the most famous post-World War II change to schooling, the GI Bill, which pretty much transformed college from a social club for wealthy elites to an institutionalized part of middle-class American education. Not to mention, eventually, the genesis of most American debt. Fast forward to 2005. After Hurricane Katrina devastated Louisiana schools, particularly in New Orleans, the city that served the largest concentration of the state students, with most school buildings literally destroyed, the state government undertook a massive takeover of the schools, although it quickly handed over operations to nonprofit charters. This was in many ways bad news for teachers because all union contracts, not to mention tenure protections, were eliminated. But one positive outcome of the takeover was that it also eliminated the cardinal agreement and Achilles heel of American public schooling, which I described in detail in this podcast's very first episode, the agreement of local control, local funding, local attendance, which lies at the heart of nearly every educational disparity in our country. Thanks to the post-Katrina takeover, students in New Orleans were now eligible to attend any school and weren't confined to the one in their neighborhood zone where they lived. That meant that living in a low-income area no longer necessarily trapped you in an underfunded and underperforming school. Add to this a massive infusion of new funding, as much as $1,400 more per student, and New Orleans got a situation where test scores, high school graduation rates, and college outcomes all improved for students in the city. President Obama's education secretary, Arne Duncan, once said that Hurricane Katrina was, quote, the best thing that ever happened, unquote, to education in the city. Although he later apologized because, man, was that a jerky thing to say to people who had lost everything, including, often, their loved ones, in the disaster. And wow, a politician apologizing for insulting someone. What a pleasant and curious relic of the past. Anyway, I'm trying to focus on the positives because, in all of these major crises, schools faced massive changes that weren't all bad. Sometimes the changes, good and ill, were temporary, but sometimes they stuck with us and became, to some extent, the new normal. And I imagine that COVID-19 will bring the same sorts of developments. 
Crises that made school inequities inescapably obvious have historically forced policymakers to make beneficial changes, even small ones, and COVID-19 definitely qualifies as one of those events. Even now, the model of community schools is gaining traction again. Communities are discovering and dusting off the Gary Plan, created by Gary, Indiana School Superintendent William Wirt in 1907. Wirt was one of the first educators to publicly forward the notion of school taking on functions beyond just education. He wrote that, quote, school must do what the school, the home, and the small shop formerly did all together, unquote. And yes, this was 1907, so schools have been expected to do all of that stuff for a very long time. But what Wirt did with the Gary Plan was institute partnerships with local libraries, churches, the YMCA, and businesses to make a wider educational sphere in which students were educated and cared for, with a focus on the whole child. It's the old, it takes a village idea. And now that COVID-19 has eroded the ability of school to house, care for, and educate students, temporarily or not, it remains to be seen. Will other community agencies be formally enlisted to step up and provide some of those services, albeit virtually in some cases? A look at the current proliferation of museums and universities and even celebrities offering free resources and tutorials seems to indicate that's already happening, and maybe it will stick around. Hey, I'm willing to admit that it's entirely possible that COVID-19 will live up to all the doomsday predictions and spell the end of school as we know it, but history shows us that how crises transform schools has never been quite that simple. As a teacher myself, I am often worried about whether my job will still be around or whether it'll resemble in any way the job I've known for the last 20 years in a post-COVID-19 era. But I am often simultaneously hopeful that from this awful pandemic, some really positive changes in public education just might result. Please don't take any of this as me being glib about the coronavirus. It's an unmistakably awful thing that is claiming thousands of lives, disrupting families and the economy, and wrecking everything from the postal system to the mechanisms of voting. All I'm saying is that schools have survived this sort of thing before, and sometimes even come out a little improved here and there. And I'm really hoping that'll be the case this time as well. Before I go, I just want to give a shout out to my family, because you probably heard them banging around it and raising a ruckus in the background here and there in this episode and the last couple of episodes as well. It's just one more reality of how we're all boxed in together with each other right now. But thankfully, this is one of those aspects of the crisis that does have an upside. I'm off to go play with my kids. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you get a treat. Today's education fun fact. The oldest working teacher in the United States, at least as of 2016, was quite possibly Agnes Zelenik, who was still teaching home economics in Plainfield, New Jersey, at 102 years old. At the time of her interview, she was capping off a 22-year teaching career at her school. Yes, she picked up the job at 81, proof that you're never too old to learn new things and start new adventures. Bye now.